in, uh, in our series, God with Us, uh, Emmanuel. Uh, last week, we talked about how, how Jesus is, is God in our time. I feel like that's the more, uh, the more debated one, the idea that Jesus could be, could be God, that, that God could have come in, in human flesh. I think maybe historically that's the more more debated one. I was just sharing the story with my kids this morning about about Saint Nicholas. Somehow Santa came up, and we we're talking about Saint Nicholas. Um, if you don't know Saint Nicholas from from history, pretty cool. Uh, Saint Nicholas was one of the leaders in the early church. He went to one of the ecumenical councils. These councils were where they got together and uh, discussed matters of orthodoxy, what the church should rightly believe, what the church should properly believe, and the uh, the whole church uh, got together. All the leaders got. To, together and um, one of the one of the men came teaching the way of Arius. Now Arius was denying that Jesus was indeed uh, indeed God. Uh, Saint Nicholas uh, did not like this. He did not care for that Arian position, and he punched uh, he punched the Arian in the face. Right, which uh, the part about uh, Santa going around the world. And bringing gifts to all the children of the world uh, is fun if you're a kid. But for me, I kind of like the grown-up version of Saint Nick, the one who punches Arians in the face, right? So that's kind of been a bigger a bigger debate throughout throughout history that that this man Jesus could be God. But in Bible times, interestingly enough, they were having this debate over whether he was a man. Right? We see this represented several places in in Scripture. They weren't debating whether. Um, whether Jesus was a God or whether any of those, they were debating his humanity at various places. Uh, various people with various religion, uh, religious leanings, um, especially people with an incipient or beginner forms of what was called Gnosticism, who, who said that the flesh was evil. They were trying to deny that Jesus could have been, could have been flesh. No, he was he was just God, which is weird to us because we do not encounter that a lot in our culture. We do encounter people go, well, Jesus was a good man. He was a man like this. We hear, but we don't find a lot of people going, well, he was God, but he wasn't a man. That's a that's an odd one in in, in history, but it, it happened, right? And so, in several places in Scripture, in responding to to that, in responding to that that idea, uh, the the writers of Scripture have, have written. It's helpful to us not that we are trapped in in that debate so much as that it helps us think about what it means that God would be God in the flesh, that Jesus would be fully God and and fully man. And so. Uh, I'll read to you, beginning in John uh, 1, verse 1. Uh, John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, if we flip to First John, verse 1, John, again writing, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. Both of these things... Um, written uh, by the Apostle John and, and written for a purpose. In the first part, he says, in the beginning was the Word. It's the idea that we affirmed last week, that, that Jesus Christ was eternally preexistent, that He always was and He always will be, that He was at creation, that He was the exact imprint of the Father's nature, as it says in Hebrews, uh, that He considered equality with God, nothing that He had to grasp after, as it says in, in Philippians, that... Um, that all things that were created were created by him and for him, as it says in uh, in Colossians. All over, all over Scripture, we get this affirmation that that Jesus is God, right? And we've talked about this before. How in 
in our time and because of our familiarity with the story, but our disconnection from from the uh, the historical experience, meaning years have passed, sometimes we are quick to accept those stories without thinking through the implications or the power or, or the um, even just the the wildness of of the story. And so, John is going to begin, and he begins writing the gospel in a in a very philosophical way. He says, "In the beginning was the Word." Which is just an affirmation that, that, that Jesus was, was the representation of God. He was God. He was the wisdom of God. The, 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 um, the word for a word is, is logos. It was the God's spoken word. But the idea is that Jesus always existed. If you go to, to the beginning, this guy was there. The word was there. And the word was with God and the word was God. Right? And then I actually forgot to put John 1.14 in, which would have been helpful because the point we want to make is John 1.14 says this, and the Word became flesh. Right? And this is what, what becomes very important. At Christmas, we are, we are celebrating essentially the Christmas celebration and Advent with it. Uh, is a is a celebration or remembrance or however you want to phrase that of this event in history that the word which was eternally preexistent always was was with God and was God became flesh. That's what's called incarnation. Uh, to be incarnate, to become uh, human. That's what Jesus did. He put on human flesh. He always exists as the second person of the Trinity. He always exists as the Son of God. He always exists in perfect unity with the Father. But at a certain point in history, He becomes a man. He becomes flesh. We do not do enough or understand enough how deep that is. Partially we can't do it because we're not... God, and so we, we don't have the perspective from His side to understand what it means that the God of the universe would become a man. But I would encourage you to spend some time reading some of the more spectacular passages of, of Scripture and then just consider, right? It, it starts at the beginning when, when God, uh, looks over everything and speaks it into being. Scripture affirms that Jesus is there. So this Jesus, this one, is the one who's there and He speaks things into being, so that the planet you sit upon, he made. But but we sit upon this planet regularly, so we don't get much time to to consider what it means. But like this planet is spinning so fast, and at just the right speed that it holds you on it. If it ever stopped, you'd you'd go flying off it. Uh, I assume, or something completely awful would happen, including if it gets at the right, wrong speed or does things wrong, it gets sucked into the sun or sucked into another planet. It goes away. But we're just one of many planets in in a galaxy full of planets. We talked about. This this in Isaiah, remember, we talked about how there's, there's trillions of stars. We rotate around one star. It's the center of our universe. And yet out there, there are trillions of those. And the scripture affirms that God knows each of those stars that is there by name because he placed them there by name. He's the one who spoke it into being. And it's not just that God has an amazing knowledge of it, right? If he just had an amazing knowledge of the universe, which, which we struggle to figure out how, how it works, right? If you've, um, ever had the common cold and a lot of people do consider that they can't fix that yet. Right? They can give you stuff, but medical science can't fix a, can't fix a cold. Uh, they can't really explain why we sneeze. Uh, 
They don't understand fully what causes itching. There's all kinds of things about the human body that medical science doesn't get. And so if he just understood medical science, I was reading this thing uh, uh, about black holes out in the universe, which are completely and totally confusing to, to scientists. Right. And um, I can't even explain them because the article was completely confusing to me. Right. But there's these things out in space that we can't explain. Right. Something that we don't we don't know about. And if it was just that this one, this God could explain them, then he'd be far and amazingly above us. Right. He'd be so far above. We'd be like, wow, you can explain it. We in our culture, we tend to value people of great intelligence who can who can explain things and understand them. But it's deeper than that. he just doesn't understand them. He doesn't just explain them. He created them. He made them. They are because he said they should be. The, he does not have to have to study. He does not have to have to think. He does not have to ponder the, the complex workings of our body. God knows why you sneeze, because he made you to do it. I can't explain that, but he gets that. And he knows why the black holes are are there. Um, He doesn't need more and more and more study. He doesn't need better telescopes. He doesn't need to dedicate his life to why the black holes exist. He made them. And so I want you to catch the grandeur of what this is and what what this means. Then, if you if you start to think about who he is at at God with his limitlessness, right? Not only is he is he here with us, right? That's the teaching of, of Scripture that God is everywhere, but he fills up the full expanse of the whole universe. There's like no place that you can go where he is not, and that's when we we are so limited. I um, one of the most enlightening things I ever did is I took Jeremiah two years ago to the January series. They had a Christian astronomer. She worked for NASA, and she talked about astronomy in light of Christianity. It was mind-blowing, right? It was amazing. But one of the greatest things you will ever do is start to grasp exactly how small our little Milky Way galaxy is in the light of, of everything. And yet, in light of us, it is giant, it is it is big beyond comprehension. So it's both big and small. We exist as as, as big creatures on a planet that 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 we we view as the center. It's not, but we view as the center of our of our universe. And yet, in the grand scope of things, it's terribly small. And there is out there expanding, 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 going away from us more and more galaxies, universes, stars, all of these things. And God is there. So the, where he is in, in his ability and his, the fact that he's, he creates and he knows all of these things. I'm just saying that God is larger than we ever comprehend. And so one of the problems with us is that we don't grasp the depth of the incarnation because we don't de- grab, grasp the depth of, of reality. Right? We haven't spent enough. So I'd say to you, one of the reasons that you should be widely read and one of the reasons you should be interested in the world and one of the reasons that you should read about things like stars and the human body and all of that is because it's a great supplement to help you understand exactly how big and powerful and amazing and wonderful and incomprehensible your God is. But you, Because you could start reading today and at the moment when you got to the place where you felt like you had a deep grasp of some concept that someone might not understand, right? And like, let's say one of you went on to be a a fine, amazing, wonderful scientist who made discoveries like nobody had ever discovered. 
The reality is all of your time would have just been putting time into discovering something that God knew from the beginning because he made it to be so. And even at the fullness of your understanding of it, you wouldn't understand fully all of it, right? Because that's, that's the real things that we believe for years and years and years, things that become conventional wisdom, our human understanding, it regularly gets changed, right? You read these articles about everything you ever believed about such and such is wrong because there's new scientific discoveries all the time. All of this is humanity grasping and flailing and trying to understand something that our brains cannot comprehend because God is bigger, wilder, more amazing, more powerful than we can even think. So I say all that to say that is who Jesus was. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's present at creation. He's the maker of the ever-expanding universe. He, he knows where the stars are and he calls them and knows them by name. He orders them. He understands things as simple as why we sneeze and 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 as de- deep as what are the depths and the smallest levels of the cells and the and, and the microbiology of of our bodies, he gets all of that, and he gets it because he made it right. Not only that, but but the the Bible says something very interesting in a in, in another context. But he says that that God knows the amount of hairs that are on our head, which always becomes a fun joke, right? Because people say, well, he has a lot less time to count with you, Dave, right? Which is true. But he knew how many hairs were on my head. And right up until 24, I had a fine head of hair, okay? But he knows the amount of hairs that are on my head. That's an interesting thing to say because I would like to assign you the job of counting the amount of hairs that are on, on a person's head. He, he knows that. And he didn't count them. He knows it intuitively because he chose it. And he knows your name. And I'm just saying the depth of who he is and what he knows, right? So... Then, but that's just to his creative ability. But what of his grandeur and worship? If you go to, to Revelation and you read the stories of, of this same John, by the way, we're in John 1, 1 John 1. If you go to Revelation, the same John gets given a vision of, 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 of God and the one on the throne. He gets a vision of the Lamb on the throne. But what's interesting to me and what I always enjoy reading the story of is the throne room. Right? Because he walks into the throne room. In the middle of the throne room, there is a throne, sure, but the throne appears to sit upon an ocean of, of, of glass. Right? And, and it's on an ocean of glass, and at the same time, there appear to be, there appear to be thunderclaps and lightning flashing from all over. And there is above it a, a, a rainbow that is, that is made of, of, of jasper, which is, uh, which is a green color. And even then, when it says there's a rainbow made of jasper, I will confess I don't know what that means, because to me, a rainbow needs more colors. But God, when He sits in His throne, He gets to have above His throne a rainbow that doesn't have all colors it's made of of jasper and there's there's the story uh, of him sitting in this throne on the on, in, in the middle of, of the, the throne room uh, upon an ocean of glass and there's lightning flashes and there's thunder peals and all of this creating this this amazing uh, picture uh, of of majesty and grandness which you can't even comprehend you realize that when you go into this throne room that that the idea should be something of awe surrounding the throne then there's there's uh, there's creatures whose job is to do nothing but praise him all all day. My favorite of those creatures are creatures that are covered. They have wings, but not only do they have wings, but they're covered with eyeballs all over them. The scripture and they have eyeballs all over them, and their job is to be before the throne and to give praise to the to the one upon the throne all day to say, "Holy, holy, holy, holy is he." 
to say worthy, 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 worthy is the land. This is what they do. And I've always been interested in the fact that they, that they're covered with eyeballs and the scripture does not, does not, um, does not enunciate why, but I've always theorized this, that in the throne room of God, that the picture is so amazing, in the presence of God, that it's so amazing, that their two eyeballs would not be enough to take in the fullness of being in the very presence of God with the job of being His worship leaders forever. And so uh, that that is just a, just a theory. But the idea is that if you walk into this throne room, there is an ocean of, of glass. In the middle of it, there's a throne. There's lightning peals. There's thunder. The picture is... It's wild, it's amazing, it's, it's incomprehensible. But in the middle of the throne, the one upon the throne is Jesus. That's what Revelation says, that the, there was a lion who was a lamb sitting upon the throne. In the middle of the throne, there these thunderclaps. And so, we don't have time to go deep into that, but I, I'm just saying, we don't comprehend, just like we don't comprehend what it means for him to be God in, as to his, his understanding of creation, we don't understand what it means for him to be God in relation to the worship of him and the glory of him that takes place and transpires in heaven, right? Around his throne all day. All of which to say is that we have not fully comprehended how big Jesus is. How big, what it means to say that he is God. So that we do not fully comprehend what it means when we say, for instance, when we say the creed that he was born of a virgin. We don't comprehend what a, what a, what a mic dropping moment it was when John wrote in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. We need to start to comprehend and start to grasp and start to get used to this idea that Jesus was the eternally always existent Son of the Father. The crea- he was there at creation. He is there in the throne room. All understanding is His. All glory is due Him. Night and day, it says that the creatures in heaven give praise to, to God. And He, what did He do? He stepped down from the throne and inhabited humanity. So it's just as big of a thing to say that Jesus is human as it is to say that Jesus is God, if you believe that Jesus is God. For when you realize that He's God, you realize how big of a deal that it is that He was flesh. Again, this is not anything that the, that the, uh, the other gods of the universe did, right? Greek gods might have had to take on human flesh, but if they did, it was a punishment, right? Think about um, various Greek mythology where when one god was being punished by another god, they would take away their powers and make them just into a human, right? It was only as, as punishment and never, never were they, were they worthy, meaning they were often de- deserving of sad punishment. It is a completely different thing to say that God decides to put on or inhabit or be human flesh, not because he is being punished for something he did, but so that he can come and be punished for something that humans did. Every other, in, in, in mythology, any other sort of religious story, there is no place where a God becomes flesh because of his love for that flesh. There are places where there's stories of gods being forced to be human, but what comes through in their story, those stories, is their hatred and their disgust with humanity. There is no place in those stories where they go, you know what? I choose humanity. 
I enter into humanity because I love, because I care, because for the Father and for His glory and the glory of what I'm about to do, I will inhabit and step into human flesh. That happens in no other place and in no other religion. In fact, this was not only the sticking point in the, in the, the time when John writes that God would become a human. It's the sticking point in arguments with Islam currently. Because they deny and say it is impossible that God could have a son. Right? The argument is Jesus can be human, but he can't be human and God at the same time. Because if he was God and he became human, he can't be God. And so that is the, that, the, the, the central argument or the central, uh, disagreement comes down to this moment of what it means that he would be incarnate. That he would be fully God and yet at the same time would inhabit human flesh so that he would be fully human. Not having in himself two different natures, a God nature which he exercises sometimes, and a human nature, but being fully God and fully man at the same time. Meaning that, um, that, that he didn't have just half of a nature of humanity and half of a nature of God and it made him into some sort of, some sort of half being. But rather he had the full nature of God, the full nature of man, and those meet in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is completely counter and completely different than any other religion that has existed, will exist, or does exist. Right? When you're writing a religion, here, here's, here's a tip. Should you ever want to write a religion? If you're writing a religion and you are the center point of that religion, what typically never happens is that you don't write into that your own death. You don't write into that your own sacrifice. You don't write into that the own laying aside of your own glory, right? Now, Jesus is fully due all the glory. He's going to fully receive all the glory. But the reality is, I do not think that any of us can argue that stepping out of a throne room where daily you were in, in, uh, where, where daily the, the worship, uh, came and cascaded and came to you, where the, where the, where, uh, where you're directing history, stepping from one moment into the direction of history and the next into a diaper, in a stable. I don't think any of us can argue that that is the normal way in which we would write the story, right? Many of us write stories where we become gods, right? We go we go the other way. We go from humanity to God. We go from our diapers to a throne, but none of us write the story where we go from a throne to a diaper. We don't write that story. None of us go go from the story from the adulation of of the angels to the adulation of the angels in your birth, to the murderous rage of a king who wants to kill you for having been born. We don't write those stories. That's not the way it works. As the commercial would say, it's just not the way any of this works. And yet, that's the story that we encounter in Scripture. And so, we need to grasp the depth of what it means that he becomes flesh. Now, we don't think of this even as a, as an argument, right? That's that's not the argument we're having. Like you've never encountered someone who went, "Okay, I buy that Jesus was God, but he was never a man." We don't encounter that a lot. We don't comprehend it a lot, but we also don't encounter it a lot. They did face this. So, when John writes 1 John, 
he writes this. He says, that which was from the beginning, right? He's referring to, to, to Jesus. And he, he could mean there from the beginning of his, from his birth. He could mean from the beginning at creation. Most likely what he means is from the beginning of all time. And so he's expressing in human idiom this idea, that which always was. Right? Any way you look at it, what he's referring to is supernatural and beyond human comprehension. That which was from the beginning, meaning Jesus, who was from the beginning, from his birth, but going back further than that, from his, um, uh, from creation, but going back further than that, he was the one who was before everything. So as it says in Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The him in that verse in Ephesians 1, 4 is Jesus. God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's that kind of beginning, meaning it is before human history. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, then he says this, so he established, Jesus was, he's, that's an emphasis of his, his godliness, his divinity, the fact that he is eternally preexistent, that he always was. And then he says this, which we have heard. He's going to go into all of these, um, uh, all of these human censoring things. He said, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's concern is that there's a bunch of people coming around. They're in the incipient forms of a religion called Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, loved the idea of pursue knowledge, pursue knowledge, pursue knowledge. And Gnosticism also affirmed the idea that flesh was naturally evil. So that to a, to a Gnostic, Jesus could not have been God in, in the flesh. Because to have flesh, just like everybody else, would have been evil. In fact, the highest and most spiritual thing you could ever be was one day God would set you free from your physical body. You were going to be free from flesh and be fully fully spirit. So John, responding to, to uh, an early form of that, not a fully developed form, but an early form of that, responds, that which was from the beginning. Jesus, which we have heard. Right? They've heard him. They heard Jesus speak. They walked with him and they, they talked with him. John spent time at his side, which we have seen. I, I've seen him. I, I know him. I was there with him. We have seen him with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Here's the idea for John. I've seen him with my eyes. I've heard his voice speak to me and I've laid hands upon him. I've touched him. He is flesh. And so John wants to emphasize again this idea that that Jesus is flesh. Emphasizing the idea that he was writing about a John 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1, 14 and the Word became flesh. John, 1 John 1, 1 that which we have was from the beginning which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, the idea of, of, um, of incarnation and the homeostatic union, right, for, for people who love really big words that you'll never be able to use, but we got some single guys, and I always want to give you a word to impress the, the ladies with, right? So... Homeostatic union. Right? This, this idea that somehow God is fully, that Jesus is God and he's fully God and he's fully man and those natures are, are in him. That I'm not saying to you that this morning that you're going to understand fully. Like go, hey, I get that. Right? You, you say you get it. I'm telling you, you don't. But I do want you to enjoy it and I do want you to embrace it and I do want you to pursue it. Right? 
whom we have seen with our eyes, who we've heard with our ears, we've touched with our hands. John wanted people to know that he was God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Now, why then does it matter? Right? Matters, theologically speaking, in, in this sense that, that there had to be a sacrifice. Right? There had to be one who was a sacrifice for us. But we're going to go deep into that next week. So let me give you just three other kind of applications of what it means that, that God, that he was God in the flesh. If he is God in the flesh, then we can trust God, right? And you go, well, how, how does that make us trust? Here, here's the thing. If God had chosen another means by which he never came to earth, by which he never inhabited flesh, by which he never did what he did, we would have stories, but we would never really know the depth of that, and we would have never really seen it, never really experienced it. And and I know that Jesus says when he's talking to Thomas, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen. Blessed are those who, who do not see and yet still believe. The reality is, a lot of us, when we hear the story of Thomas, who doubted that, doubted Jesus, we like to associate ourselves with those other disciples or with those people who have who have not seen and still believed. I find it's usually a mistake when I encounter Scripture to associate myself with the good guy in any sense. Right? When I read any scriptural passage, when I read about the bad guy, I should immediately go find the worst guy in the passage and assume that that's the one that's talking to me. So, Jesus, <laughs> Thomas... After Jesus' resurrection, Thomas is like, I won't believe until I see it with my eyes, until I put my finger in his side. I won't believe. So Jesus shows up on the scene, right? He appears to him. What's Thomas do? Thomas hits his face. He's like, boom, getting on your face. That is the right response, right? Jesus shows up in the, in the flesh. <laughs> it's your face, right? And he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, because you have seen me believe. Here's the thing. I think most of us are Thomases, right? I think most of humanity is Thomases. I'm not the Father. He's all-knowing, all-wise, all-thing. One would think that maybe in all of his all of his his control of the universe, he could have made or designed a way to rescue humanity without sending himself in the flesh. But he didn't. He chose to send himself in the flesh. I think this is good for humanity because if all we had was the promise that someplace out there there really was something spiritual that really could rescue us and we never got to see it, we never got to touch it, we never got to feel it, it would make it very difficult for any of us to have to have faith. We're like Thomas. We needed to see, right? So when Jesus says that, blessed are those who, who, who believe without seeing, I don't know who those people are, but when he says you believe because you have seen, that's me. Right, I get that. And you go, well, we haven't seen him in the flesh. No, but we live in light of the revelation of Scripture, which tells us about his real life that he lived, about the things that he did, the way that he interacted. We can encounter the person of Jesus, right? So one of the things it does is it allows us to, to trust him. If, if, if God never comes in the flesh, we still have, have the, the same God, right, in, in heaven. He's still the creator. He could still have some way to rescue us, but we would not know him. We could not trust him, and that's the second one, right? So I think there's a trust thing. The second thing is, is I don't know how we know God unless God comes in the, in the flesh. 
in, in the human sense. I was reading as I was studying, I came around upon someone who said, one of the reasons for the incarnation is so that God could know humans. And I went, what? So I started, started reading that, and I'm gonna, um, he said, well, God could know him so he could know who they're, and so I would respectfully and openly disagree with that. In fact, I think that's, that's rather silly. God knew humans because he's this thing called God. Right? And so, God did not need to create, it did not need to send Jesus so that he could understand humans. He understood humans because he made them. You know who did need to understand? Right? So this person said, God sent Jesus so that, that Jesus could know humans. Right? No, God sent Jesus so that humans could know God. Right? That's why, why Jesus comes. God is knowable in Jesus, right? He's the exact imprint of his nature. We talked about that last week in Hebrews. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. We talked about that in, in Philippians. In, at the cross of, of Jesus, when he dies, it says, it is finished. I think that statement is more than, than just a, um, more than just a statement on the act of the cross, which is central to history, but I think it's a, a statement on revelation, like the, the, the fullness of what revelation and what we would need that it centers in Jesus and who he is. Jesus is... There is nothing to be known about God that cannot be known from Jesus. There is nothing that you can know about God that you will somehow know apart from Jesus, right? It is in encountering Jesus and encountering what he does in your life and encountering the cross that God is made knowable to you, right? And so, so you... And I, as we go to worship God, we get to worship a God we know. We get to call this God by name, right? He's not nebulous God. He's not spiritual being. He's not, he's not a positive feeling. He is a real in the flesh human who came to this planet, who is knowable and callable by name. John got to touch him. John got to see him. John got to hear him. And he wrote about him and explained him so that we can delve into him and dig into him, encounter him in scripture and go, that is who Jesus was. And if that is who Jesus is, then that is who God is. And I can know God through Jesus, but better than that, if we are in him and we know him, the day is coming when the, we are talking about the first advent, his birth, but when his second advent comes, when Jesus returns, we too will get to see and hear and touch God through Jesus. He makes God knowable. If you want to know God, you need Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, he is not knowable. Why? Because he is the mediator. He's the go-between. So, he makes it so it's possible to trust him. He makes it so it's possible to know him. He also makes it possible for us to communicate with him or approach him. He makes God approachable. You have no approach to God apart from Jesus. You're not getting there. Remember we talked about the, about the throne room. Right? The throne room with the lightning and the thunder and the colors which your eyes can't comprehend and the people worshiping all day. And frankly, it sounds like one of the loudest, most amazing, most chaotic uh, uh, worship experiences ever. But what I know that we're supposed to encounter there is this feeling of 
And this feeling of shrinking back, we know this because John himself did continually. He shrinks back from the things he sees. It's almost too much for his eyes. He can't approach. In the center of that throne sits Jesus. In the center of that throne room sits Jesus. You, or he, to get to the throne is to get to God. But you can't get to that throne on your own. You have no means to get there. If you take the human humanity of Jesus out, how do you get there? You needed a mediator. We talked about this before when we talked about about Jesus being God. He speaks the language of heaven and the language of your fallen heart. So He is the go-between between you and the Father. You can approach Him. You can go to Him. You get to see Him, hear Him, and touch Him. Right? And right now, you do not get to do that physically, but you do get to, in prayer, go to Him. So that when it says in Hebrews, Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of God I can only assume that he means that same throne. Like, I don't see any place where it says, no, there's several thrones. You get to approach the lesser throne. In the less wild worship room. In the less, in the, in, in, in the less glorious one with the less worshipers. No, we've got a calm room for you to approach. You know, you, you're in the outer room. When he says the throne, I've got to assume he means that throne. Let us both, think about that. I cannot even comprehend. I can't comprehend the picture that, that's transpiring in, in heaven there. My eyes, my mind can't do it. I just know it's wild, right? Like, I would love to have great, effusive, very descriptive words for you, and I keep coming up with, with such genius things as wild, right? That's, that's what I've got. Because I can't comprehend, and I can't, I can't do it. And, and, and so, let me ask you this. Were you ushered? someplace into the presence of a king into the waiting room maybe of a king's throne room would you show up without appointment and go marching in i'm like like history is littered with people who approach thrones without being invited they typically get killed by the person sitting upon the throne you don't approach a king's throne without without that see jesus in the flesh is your invitation to the throne and the interesting thing is is, is that he sits upon the throne. And he bids you to come, right? It's that moment where where you want to approach, but you fear to approach. And even in the midst of all the chaos and the craziness, a voice comes from the throne. Come on, child. Come on. Right? And so there is this thing in 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 the nature of God, and there is this thing in in, in our understanding. That even though there's all of that wildness and glory and all of that incomprehensibility, because Jesus came in the flesh, he sits upon the throne in the flesh, and he calls you to approach him in his flesh. See, his glory, the glory of the living God, would never have been palatable to you. It would have destroyed you. It would have blown you up. It would have been too much for you. Save this one. God in the flesh, which makes that throne approachable. You needed a human, a go-between, a mediator. Someone to say, no, let them come. Let them come. I know them. That's my child. You get to go to the throne. If Jesus never came in the flesh, first off, none of the rest of the book is true either. So why be here? But let's say we just, we go, well, no, Jesus came 
and he was not in the flesh. But we believe everything else. I'm not going near that throne. I don't have anyone who bids me come. I don't have anyone who, who mediates. I have no one who speaks to the Father on my behalf. I have no one who says, it's okay, let him come. Because really, think about it. You need his flesh. Not See, I'm so terrible at topical messages because I have three topics. And next week has a topic. And I keep wanting to jump to that. But we're just going to do that and I'll fix that next week. okay? Because here, here's the point. Here's the point. If he doesn't come in the flesh, you can't approach the throne. Because not only does he mediate between God and you through communication, he mediated between God and you through sacrifice. God placed the wrath that you deserved upon him. He died in the flesh. He resurrected in the flesh. He is alive in the flesh so that you can go to the living God of the universe in the flesh. If Jesus is not real, if Jesus is not in the flesh, I am not going near the throne. I will be destroyed. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. I should not go near. And and in my flesh, I'm none of those things. But here's the great thing. In Jesus' flesh, I get worthiness. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God, so that I might become an heir of all things, that I might get the inheritance that is due him. It takes flesh to do all of that. Incarnation's a huge deal. He's human. He's human. He's both God and man. Next week we'll talk about what it means for him to be with us. Right? But for now, he's God and man, and it changes everything. It leaves nothing unchanged. You need him. There's a million other ways, right? You can trust him. You can know him. You can approach him. And part of that is because he knows you. He's been through what you've been through. He's been tested and tried like you've been tested and tried, right? He's suffered like you, you suffer. He's sorrowed like you sorrow. He's hurt like you hurt. He's been tempted like you've been tempted. And yet all of this without sin, so that. He might carry out the will of the Father. And so that we might approach Him on that throne. That's incarnation. It's really good news. Pray with me.